Today we reflect upon the scourging at the pillar, the second of the sorrowful mysteries. We were unable to get into the chapel of the scourging of the pillar, uh, commemorating the place whenever we were in, in Jerusalem, uh, on account of our, uh, of our group wanting to get there before the regular business of the day and all the, all the other crowds um, coming to make the devotion would get there. Uh, and so we were able to pray it more quietly and more peacefully along the way. Uh, but uh, the starting point was not unlocked yet. Uh, so we prayed outside the chapel of the scourging. But nonetheless, it is for us certainly to know the reality of the scourging of the pillar, to be able to reflect upon this great mystery that our Lord wore written on his very flesh. Our Lord appeared to St. Bridget at one point, St. Bridget of Sweden, and revealed to her the mysteries of his passion. And he gave to her the 14 magnificent prayers of St. Bridget, as they are still practiced in many places today. And it said that if one were to offer those 14 magnificent prayers each day for a year, then one would wind up at the number of wounds our Lord bore upon his flesh. They are 5,110. The wounds our Lord received on account of us. We know that the whips uh, that were used to scourge our blessed Lord were not just a a whip as a a single lash, like a cowboy's lash, uh, as he goes out to, to be able to keep his animals in line. But rather, it is a whip that each of the cords are are held individually, and at the end of which, or the middle of which, or sometimes both, will be pieces of broken bone, of rock, or of metal. So that whenever one was scourged, one didn't just have it happen on the the surface, um, it tore into the flesh. That it literally tore one to pieces as this took place. This is shown vividly in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. It is a gory scene, a tragic thing, but it is the reality to be able to see the consequence of sin written upon the flesh of our Savior. The fruit of the mystery of the scourging of the pillar is purity. And it's fittingly if we understand the mystery itself and what it does, because we know that the scourging of the pillar, our Lord was torn to pieces. He was torn apart by the scourging. He was disintegrated in so many ways. And the reality is that he is doing it because of our lack of purity. Purity is a singular intention upon things, a singular focus, being of one mind and of one heart as regards God and not divided between God and the things of the flesh, the things of the world. It is to have unity. To tear our Lord apart is to show the opposite of it our Lord being torn apart by our lack of purity. When we think of purity, oftentimes it begins with bodily purity, and rightly so, as indeed our current century, the the time of the church, and indeed from from all of history, very easily focuses upon physical impurity. We know that the the first commandment of the Lord to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply, And so it seems right that that would also be one of the main things that the evil one would certainly focus upon, um, the place of of immorality, of separating us from God, that he would start there at the original command. And so he has. And certainly know the lamentations of Our Lady of Fatima, the great deluge of impurity that has come upon us in the last century and continues to increase. Together with this, uh, the reminders of numerous church fathers and and saints of the church who have pointed out that the the vast majority of those in hell, at least according to St. Alphonsus of uh, Liguori, 
the vast majority of those who find themselves in the fires of hell are there because of the sins of the flesh, particularly against the sixth and the ninth commandments. And this is the reality of things, that it is everywhere in our world today. We must remedy it with chastity, with modesty. Of course, these two virtues apply equally to all persons. Sometimes chastity is thought to be uh, the, the realm of the consecrated or those who are unmarried. And if you're married, whatever goes, goes. But this certainly is not the case. Chastity is to be observed and maintained by every last one of us, regardless of our state in life. Some are called to celibate chastity, but indeed all are called to chastity, to a purity of mind, a purity of intention as regards oneself, one's spouse, if that be the case, as well as others. To this, we also must add modesty. When we hear modesty, often is in reference merely to women, and it seems like men just get off the hook free. But the fact is that modesty applies to men as well. Modesty is simply a, a, a covering of things, a veiling of things, so as not to show more than what is um, essential, really, what is needed, to show the intimacy, the intimate parts of an individual. And so it is for each of us, male and female, to observe also this modesty, this covering of ourselves, both so that we might not become the objects of someone else's lustful gaze, but also so as to encourage the the world around us and by by dressing modestly ourselves, to be able to encourage others in the same, and to be able to, by doing it ourselves, uh, to think more modestly of others, to have a greater purity of mind, a purity of heart. And so it is, again, right that we speak about this reality of purity of our bodies, specifically within the sexual realm. But it is also to look to the things of our mind, to purify our mind. I forget where I heard it recently, perhaps a podcast. It was an individual who was speaking with a monk. And the monk told him, if you would like to see how children sin, how those who are spiritual infants sin, go to Las Vegas. You'll see the sins of the flesh. You'll see the lusts of the flesh. You'll see the sexual immorality. You'll see drunkenness. You'll see the, uh, the wiles of seeking to gain, uh, to, to gain you know, wild riches and these kinds of things. But he said, if you want to see how people sin like a man, come to the monastery and look around. Sounds a strange thing, huh? But the reality of what this monk is saying is, is that our fleshly, our fleshly sins, the bodily sins, the, the, the lusts of the flesh are the base ones. They're, they're, they are the ones where if one is, is not overcome those, one is, is at, at the precipice, not at the precipice, they're, they're at the threshold of the spiritual life. They're about to start in earnest the fullness of the spiritual life. The teachers of the, of the spiritual theology continually teach about this in the life of the church. That freedom from mortal sin, which is often synonymous with freedom from, um, from physical sin, the lust of the flesh, whenever one enters into that place, one enters into the first stage of the spiritual life. One has not uh, uh, reached the heights of sanctity merely because mortal sin is avoided. It's the starting point. It's step one. But the church always shows to us that the higher one goes, the more complex things get, and the more they go, they turn from the body to that of the mind, the sins of the mind, that of pride, that of self-will, that of, of judgment against one's neighbor, that of malicious thoughts. These are the things the monk was highlighting within an old monastery, 
The things of the flesh, those are long since gone in so many ways. But the sins of the mind, they are the true battleground then. This is what it is to sin like a man, as he was saying, to be able to sin like an adult in the faith, a grown-up in the faith who has moved past these simple and more base childish things. So it is also to recognize that in our Lord's passion that he himself has also revealed that the grave, the the more serious sins, the, the sins that wounded him most deeply were not those of his flesh, but those of the mind, those of his spirit that correspond with those of our mind, with our spirit. They are the ones that cause the deeper wound, not simply the things of the flesh. And so it is for us as we have, as we attain this purity of our bodies to ensure we also have the purity of our mind. In the scriptures, we hear of, of Nathaniel, whom our blessed Lord looks upon and sees him under the fig tree. And he comes to him and he says, of, of him, there is no duplicity in him. It seems a strange thing, to, a strange accolade to be able to give to someone. But it is a beautiful one because having no duplicity means that he's not divided. He's not one thing over here and another thing over there. He's not pious in church, but then impious when he goes out to lunch afterwards. He doesn't maintain one, you know, clean speech in one place and tell, you know, inappropriate or rude or profane jokes or things elsewhere. He is who he is, and he is singular. And this is indeed high praise, that he is one man, not divided in mind or in heart. And it's this that we ought to strive for, to be one to have within ourselves not a, a war, you know, of, of this, this part of me and that part of me, but rather to, to bring all of me to Christ and know that there will be parts that are not perfect. There will be parts that are not pure and holy yet. And that's why we come and we hear the words of, of St. Paul encouraging us. It's why we hear the words of the Mass and we receive the grace of the sacraments is to purify us, to sanctify us, to pull us out of the unholiness that is our wounded condition and to lead us to holiness, to pull us from impurity and to bring us to purity. And so it is for us not to be divided in our mind, not to be able to allow the, the sins of the mind and of the, of, the, of the will, the intellect, to allow these higher things to become wounds in the heart of our Lord. It is for us to ensure that there is humility, that there is no judgment, that there is no condemnation or comparison versus others, There's no sense of superiority or a focus upon self-will. So these things must also be purified to be able to focus upon the Lord and not be a source of division within ourselves or between ourselves and others or to cause condemnation upon ourselves on account of these things. But rather, it is to seek both in body and in mind purity. And the means to attain both is really the same and it comes in a whole variety of different, uh, different means and methods, but it is a singular thing, and it is mortification. When I was uh, in the seminary, I took some time off when I was in the seminary, and I was discerning monastic life, and I went to go to a monastery of uh, a brother seminary, and one of my classmates was a monk there. And so I went, and I was discerning this particular community, whether God may be calling me there. And he was showing me around the, around the monastery, and he went to a particular, uh, one of the, the chapter room, the, basically the, when you have to have a family meeting in private and nobody else is around, uh, it's the chapter room where they have the most intimate conversations. And so they went there, or we went there, uh, my friend and I, and he was showing me around, and all around the room, there were images of monks painted on the wall, each doing kind of different things. So there's a picture of a monk fasting, 
picture of a monk praying, a picture of a monk working, a picture of a monk doing all kinds of things. And there was one image of a, a painting of a monk who was, uh, it was stripped to his waist. He had his habit pulled down to his waist, and he had the discipline in his hand, right? The discipline being the, uh, a scourge, a whip, right? And so uh, a contemporary scourge typically would not have bones and sharp objects on it. It's not trying to destroy one's, one's flesh physically, but usually it's knots or beads or these kinds of things that one would uh, have upon one's scourge to be able to strike the flesh and to, to offer up some mortification. And so looking at this, he, he walked over and he, he was like, Brent, I always love this one. And he took out his rosary and kindly hit me with it on the back. I was like, what are you doing? And he says, it says, corpus castigare, castigate the body. It didn't say I had to castigate my body. I choose yours instead. I guess that works, brother, but I don't think that was St. Benedict's intention here. But really, it is part of the Christian life. And what he was saying was, is this is a, all of these things were part of the monastic life. It was, you know, that, that you, 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 you fast, you pray, you work. You castigate the body. You offer mortifications. And these were parts of, of the normal life, part of the Christian life. And so this is the invitation for us is to take up mortification, as the saints would call it, to do violence to our flesh. And that sounds really, really twisted these days. When you go to the, when you go to the bookstore, I'm sure there are probably multiple aisles now of, of self-help books books that encourage us to, to heap affirmations and praises upon ourselves, and there's, there may be a place for that in, in some sense. But to be able to go to the religious section and find a book on mortifying oneself, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find even one that would actually mean, show anything of the sense of, of how do I mortify my flesh? How do I mortify my mind? How do I cause violence? So as to embrace the cross and draw close to Christ by being purified and sanctified. Nonetheless, it is for us to take up these things. And again, whenever we take up physical mortifications, it's best to do it with the guidance of a spiritual director or a trusted spiritual guide, lest one do it for the wrong reasons or to some extreme. And so there has to be uh, kind of a, there has to be reason uh, injected into things and not just pure force of will. But it is to acknowledge that these things should be done in some manner. And oftentimes they can be done in a medicinal manner. When you go to the doctor, if you have a, a particular illness, he doesn't just kind of reach in a drawer and pull out some kind of pill and says, try that and see what happens, right? He says, oh, you're, you, you've got knee trouble. Okay, well, here's something that might help you with that. You've got heart trouble. Here's something that might help you with that, right? So they specify the things that we mortify and, and for ourselves in a similar manner. If one really enjoys nice warm showers, take a cold one. If one enjoys the temperature being just right so you don't have to sweat, roll the windows down in the summer in your car and enjoy the heat for a while and just apologize wherever you happen to go for all the sweat that's pouring off of you and the perhaps stench that may be emanating around you like Pepe Le Pew, huh? Is to be able to offer up some suffering in these things. If one is enjoying entertainment, we know that entertainment today is harder and harder to be able to find things that are pure, to simply go on the majority of, of music or video websites uh, is to find that more and more you see explicit lyrics labels on the fronts of albums. I saw a country album with an explicit lyrics label this week. It was absurd to me. Country music is supposed to be just about your truck and your dogs and just how you're heartbroken about things. 
and there was an explicit lyrics label. I said, what, what madness is this? This is our culture, right? Everything is impure all around us. And so part of that is, is not just to simply kind of swim in it and be like, wow, this is terrible. Wow, this pool is really, really disgusting. But some of these things are to pull ourselves out of it. So part of mortification is mortifying that I'm never going to see that again. I'm never going to listen to that again. I'm not going to use this app anymore. I'm not going to watch this TV anymore. I'm not going to pay for this subscription anymore, right? So to purify ourselves of it in that sense, in a permanent sense. But also whenever we see things, it's from us from time to time even just to purify it in the small ways. Well, sometimes even the, the content we watch may not be bad, it may not be impure, but it can be a distraction from life. It can be an escape from life. It can be a place where we just simply try to seek comfort. And in that place too, it's an opportunity for us to fast, to abstain from it. Even the, even the secular world is encouraging tech fast now. And so it's for us to be able to do the same. If we're caught up with food, if we enjoy the things of the flesh, and this easily can lead us uh, to, further, uh, to further abuses uh, or, or kind of open the gates uh, to the other pleasures of the flesh, one can abstain from a certain food or foods. One can fast, and certainly an encouragement for us during this Lenten season and through the year. You can also do rather obscure things that seem a bit odd and contrary to most of our, of our normal things. You can cook without seasoning. It is possible, folks, to cook without adding Tony's to it. I promise you, it can be done. It won't taste as good, but it can be done. Or, also unthinkably, to be able to cook one's food, and if it is hot, let it cool down a while. Or if it is cold, let it warm up a bit. So it's a little bit less enjoyable. Because we all like to enjoy our food. Who doesn't love the sound of the fajitas when they come out and the sizzling and the smoking? Ah, fresh, hot fajitas. We don't like it a little bit more whenever you get to the end of the meal and the meat's kind of cooled off a bit and the, the onions are a little overcooked. But these are ways, little ways, subtle ways that no one around us will necessarily notice, but they are ways we can mortify our desire to have comfortable and enjoyable and pleasurable things. All of these, of course, focus upon the things of the flesh. But again, the more difficult ones are those of the mind. It's easy sometimes whenever we choose to be able to, to take up a mortification for ourselves, when we ourselves will it, to be able to, uh, to choose to fast for a particular intention. Say that I know there's a, an individual who needs extra prayers for some reason, and uh, you know, I choose to, to offer a fast, to fast from, from lunch that day for them. I can do that, and I can do that in a joyful spirit and, and, and you know, with, with relative ease. But when the doctor says, um, Brent, I would like you to fast, uh, fast, you know, and to be able to skip a meal so, so we can draw your blood at the right time and, you know, not be, uh, you know, messed up by the food that you've eaten. It's like, it's like all-out war because somebody else told me I have to fast rather than me just choosing it for myself. Whenever my will is involved in sufferings, they become lighter sometimes. And so, a greater thing is to embrace the sufferings that are imposed upon us, because we don't choose them, and oftentimes we don't like them, and they are an inconvenience to us. I say this particularly as regards uh, our will. To be able to, to allow someone to choose for us or to impose upon us takes things out of our hands. 
The fact is uh, that there are times, again, where I may have a particular schedule, I may have a rhythm, I'm, I'm, I'm in the zone, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm there. And then someone comes up and says, Father, I have a question. Or Father, can you do this thing for me real quick? Or Father, can you come look at this? It's a mortification to say yes. And anyone who's ever caught me in that situation when I'm buzzing from back there to up here or up here to back there, if you catch me in the office or if I'm moving somewhere around campus and I have an intense look on my face, you've likely seen me having to crucify my will because I would much rather just keep going, right? It's the fact of things. But to be inconvenienced, to allow my will then to be set aside so that someone else's will can come to the forefront, this, this can be a cross. This is mortification. Because it's not just purifying the flesh, it's purifying our will, our intention. And this is where things really, really get difficult for us. Because again, we can take up all kinds of physical things as long as our will is still maintained. But when our will is changed, when someone else is opposed upon us, that's when the cross gets really heavy. That's when we realize the, the, the reality of the, the sinning like a man, suffering the cross, mortifying like a man. It's not in stripes on the back. It's in the death to the will. This is the maturity in the Christian life. And so it's the, the grace that we ask of our Lord to be able to, to come to us and to help us to purify our, our minds, to purify our will as well. And so as we offer this Mass, it's for us to rejoice in, in being able to come once more to this great mystery, where in, in a mystical manner we were able to enter into the passion of our blessed Lord, to know that his stripes are counted once more here in this holy Mass, the 5,110 of them that bear our name and our deeds. And on account of these, to beg our Lord for his mercy and to beg him for the fruit of the stripes, to be able to beg him for the remedy of them, the purity. And to know what, whatever it is that it is within us, whether it is in our flesh or within our mind, whether it is the world around us, the world within us, to know what is the impurity that the Lord would have us detox from, detach from, crucify, and to beg the Lord the grace to mortify these things by his grace, to continue to grow in that purity of heart for which we were created, for which the Lord continues to sustain and to offer so many graces for us, and pray that we too might one day be so deserving of that great title given to Nathaniel of being one without duplicity, as we have at the heart of all things the Lord God himself.